You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Jobless workers and advocacy groups rallied last week over frustrations with our unemployment claim system. DLIR Director Ann Pereira Estacchio spoke with the conversation's Savannah Harriman Pote to address the backlog. Listeners called and wrote in to share their questions. The first question that we received was, how can a claimant apply for benefits if they are not computer literate and they have no family to help them? So we have an agreement with the libraries for our clientele to um, go to whichever library is closest to their home, and they will help them through the process. Okay, and so that assumes that the libraries are open across the state, because I know that certain library locations are still closed. Do they? Correct. Do Some they? are still closed. Uh, many have, of them have reopened with specific hours. Okay, so if someone wanted to utilize this particular amenity, would they call their local library and make an appointment in advance? No, probably not. They would just go down to their library during those open hours. Okay, and that co- but that coordination would happen between them and the library, is that correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then additionally, we have a question from Mary Oates, a board member of the Hawaii Workers Center. Our folks at the rally, our, our worker members, are basically wanting to know how many applicants are actually backlogged. Give us a number for how many are backlogged and what is the average time it takes to pay out a claim when it's when someone's eligible. It's not the 21 days. We know that. So what is the average time? And, and I would add to that, what is the plan for achieving the federal standard for payout to claimants of 21 days, and what does the department need to achieve that goal? Okay, so the federal standard for payout for 21 days is just the first pay standard. And so that's initially when someone comes in and files an initial claim. So up front, we had um, a lot of issues with obtaining claims and getting them processed through our system because of the um, mainframe and the problems we were having with the um, mainframe and running efficiently. And so any claim that gets held up for any other reason, say there is a issue on their account or there's a stop because we are working on um, extended benefits, does not have um, have a time period established like the first pay that we do with the first pay. When you initially file your claim, that's the first pay um, performance requirement or measure. Mm-hmm. And once you receive your first pay, there could be a multitude of reasons why your claim would stop um, through the process for payment. If there is an issue that was created either on the claimant's end or the employer's end, or like most recently when we were trying to implement the PEUC extension, the claims were being held up until that extension was programmed and ready um, to launch in the production region. Mm -hmm. I want to return actually to the content of Mary Oates' question. If we're to isolate that question down even further, are you confident in saying that the department is able to achieve that federal standard just for those people who initially file? I would say that we are probably not meeting the 98% um, that the federal government um, normally tries to regulate throughout the um, unemployment insurance system. Um, all states 
are having initially problems with processing claims because of the, the workload, but we are trying our very best as administratively feasible to pay out benefits as quickly as we possibly can. And you mentioned workload as an obstacle to achieving that standard. Is that the only obstacle? Um, workload as well as the brand new program. So. I just want to interject and say that, you know, there's an impression or maybe a misunderstanding that the Unemployment Insurance Office has taken a whole year to get everything um, in perspective. But to tell you the truth, it's really we've worked on many different and new um, projects and implemented many different programs within the year. So the problems that we were experiencing back in March of 2020 are not necessarily the same problems you're experiencing today. So we've actually implemented 12 new programs into the unemployment insurance system since March of 2020. So we've been working and implementing additional applications to provide claimants with assistance. The people that we do often hear from are the people who haven't had the system work for them yet. You did say that Hawaii is not achieving the 98% payout within the federal standard for and the initial phase. Do you have an estimation of what percentage we might be hitting at this time? I don't know what the percentage is right now. I haven't received any of those reports from the U.S. Department of Labor, but if I, I can definitely check with the Unemployment Insurance Office to get those figures. Folks at the Hawaii Workers Center also held a rally last week in hopes that the Unemployment Office would reopen one of its physical locations for claimants. And they wanted to know specifically in this conversation, why can't you open a call center at the Honolulu Convention Center to help them and others who need appointments using an appointment system or a stagger system similar to how other government departments have reopened. So that call center specifically to take calls from claimants across the state, not just on Oahu. And so if we were to open up that um, convention center and use the same individuals that are taking calls for the statewide claimants, then we would be helping the few and not the many. I can tell you that the um, crowd control would be an extremely hard issue for us to manage if we opened up a um, face-to-face center at the convention center. And we would just be um, servicing those individuals on Oahu when the unemployment insurance's um, responsibility is to service everyone in the state of Hawaii. Okay, but why doesn't the department have the resources to service everyone in the state of Hawaii the way that the people are asking for? Why are you having to make these decisions and selectively apply these resources? Okay, so prior to the pandemic, prior to March 2020, unemployment was at the lowest there ever was in Hawaii. It was at 2.4%. And the Unemployment Insurance Office is um, funded by federal um, money and not state money. And we're also funded through workload. And at that time, since the workload was extremely low, our funding for staffing was extremely low. We had the lowest um, staffing we had in many, many years. Unemployment insurance is a very complicated program, as everyone can has been able to see throughout this process. And to up-train individuals to understand the um, 
nuances of the unemployment insurance system and the federal regulations, as well as working with our mainframe applications. It's um, hard to uptrain someone to be extremely proficient and help a claimant from beginning to end without any help from someone who actually understands the system. When the pandemic hit, we brought in individuals to help us move through this process and to service more and more of our clientele. But I can tell you that even though we brought in over 100 individuals, these individuals are just not as experienced as they need to be in order to sufficiently help a claimant from beginning to end and get them on the path to um, where they want to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're trying to achieve. And so at the call center, we are up training so that they can take a call and at some point be able to help this claimant clean up their claim and get them to the point where they would like to be. Still at this point with the individuals that we have at the call center, we are having to um, help them throughout the process while they're on their call. And so the experts, those who have been with us for many years, are, are few because of the low um, personnel that we had when we first started this pandemic. And so that's the major problem we're experiencing with servicing um, clientele statewide. You have to remember that we took in over 300,000 initial claims for unemployment insurance alone. We also took in almost 200,000 claims for what we call PUA, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. The same staff that are working on regular unemployment insurance um, are the individuals in unemployment who are also servicing those who qualify for PUA. So it's a bigger program than you would anticipate. Mm-hmm. This last question we've heard quite a few times. My name is Lisa, and I had a question. What phone number do we call to get an actual person who can actually handle discrepancies on our unemployment benefits? I've been calling for over six months now, and I cannot get a live person and um, I can't get anybody to call me back. So I'm just wondering, how do we get an actual person who can handle our discrepancies? Thank you. Right, so the best channel is to call the call center. The call center has been set up um, to answer calls. We have individual staff members there who take those calls and are able to um, look at a claim And if they cannot clean it up from beginning to end, like I had um, mentioned earlier, because they may be new on the job, you know, we had to hire up so that we could continue to service our clientele. There are professionals on site who do understand the process at unemployment and they know how to navigate our system where they will provide them with assistance so that they can help these claimants get through their claims and um, clean them up. So the best phone number is again this 762-5751 or 762-5752 or our toll-free line at 1-833-901-2272 or 2275. Um, Just yesterday we implemented a new program to help us um, mitigate the um, problems we're having with the call center because of um, what we call auto dialers. 
So we've had um, a, a big amount of auto dialers come into the system, and um, we implemented a program to stop um, those auto dialers from dialing in and allowing other individuals to get through so that more and more individuals can get through our, to our call center. Can you clarify what you mean by an auto dialer? Is that an automated bot? Yes. So it is an automated bot. It will constantly continue to call the system. So we were getting close to 200,000 calls a day. Yesterday, we, um, once the day was over, we had a total of 32,000 calls, a drastic decrease in calls when we started to block out the auto callers. Of course, we're going to have claimants who still cannot get through. If you have 32,000 calls in a day and we only can service about 2,000 a day, you're going to have individual callers who can't get through. And so we are also implementing a new process that will start on Friday where we will have a team of um, staff members here who will go through those calls that either got dropped or could not get through. And we will start looking at their claims, trying to clean them up and giving those claimants a call to let them know what we've done on their claim and how we can continue to move forward if we still need additional information. Of course, even at that point, we will not be able to get through thousands of calls in one day. So the best avenue to be serviced is to continue to call the call center so that they can continue to try and get through to a live body. And then we will also work on our end to reach out to those who were not able to get through and try and service them in that way. That was State Labor Director Ann Pereira Estacchio. Thanks to the Hawaii Worker Center and those of you who wrote or called in to share your questions. Uh, we do want to keep hearing your stories. Uh, our talk back line is open at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today, our reality check looks at Hawaiian Airlines and how it's juggling, uh, trying to keep its workforce intact. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. So, you know, I know Hawaiian Airlines said they might have to lay off like hundreds of workers, uh, you know, in the next few weeks, but uh, that's been put on pause. Yeah, it looks like it, possibly, um, at least for now. So the story was, uh, back in uh, Jan late January, the company said, uh, told the Department of Labor, it looks like we're going to need to uh, lay off about 800 people starting in uh, April. April 1st through the couple of first couple of weeks of the month, they were going to lay off 800 people. They came back uh, <laughs> the next day and said, well, it's not all of those 800 people. Some of these will uh, not start until June, the layoffs. So we called to find out the status. Um, as you know, we had the big uh, announcement from Love's Bakery. So we wanted to find out, are we getting another blow to, 
to the workforce and in the economy coming soon. And Hawaiian told us that they're actually pushing back uh, until instead of starting these in April, starting in May. So that was the story as of, as of uh, yesterday. But at the same time, the company is very encouraged by the move uh, by Kauai to open up to tourists. That helps them a lot. So the point is, it's really in flux. And, you know, here's this giant company, enormously complex operations, a you know, workforce of uh, thousands of workers, uh, skilled workers, unionized workers, a very complicated situation to figure out how do we right-size our staff given a changing situation with travel. Yeah, and So the that's last, where they are. The last thing yeah. we need is, you know, what, another thousand unemployed workers adding to the already burdened uh, labor department. You know, we just heard uh, from the director. Uh, so, yeah, you're, it, it, that's good news if you're not going to lay off 800 workers right away. Right, but we just don't know. So it is being pushed back. We do know that. The company has said they're pushing back the start of these layoffs um, at least a month. So it wouldn't start until the beginning of May. Uh, but again, they don't know. And the the whole travel situation is uh, is in flux. And, and they, again, don't know. It doesn't help the situation that the summer outlook is is good on one hand, but possibly could be better uh, if there was some change to the uh, travel testing program, or as they call it, the safe travels program that lets people uh, skip quarantine by getting a test. Uh, As you know, the push is to try to get them to uh, be able to skip quarantine by showing proof of a vaccine, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, I uh, talked to relatives on the mainland who said that their neighbors were planning a trip to Hawaii, uh, to several islands, but it was it was too humbug with the different rules. So they just uh, canceled the, the, their plans until later. Yeah, until until how much later? I'm curious. Like, what was there? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's exactly what we're hearing, and and the problem that. Th- industry executives and others are laying out. Well, I think they're just concerned because of the news about the variants, right? I mean, we do have that third of vaccine, but, you know, we, we don't have a real clear picture as to when we get additional supplies and doses on island. Uh, so, yeah, lots of uncertainty out there. Right. And that's the concern that if people right now is when people are making plans for the summer and if they don't have some clarity, then they'll choose somewhere else or not choose Hawaii. And again, at stake are hundreds of jobs from Hawaiian Airlines alone, uh, not to mention hotels and everything else. Yeah. And I I can see Hawaiians, you know, position. They want to make sure that they're, you know, if they've got those planes in the air and the workers, uh, you know, staffing those planes that there's going to be customers. Hopefully the confidence of the consumers, uh, you know, will be strong. Right. Uh, But as you point out, there are uncertainties. um, And again, this is even the people pushing for some kind of clarity on the state's policy, uh, say, acknowledge the variants are a concern and also the rollout of vaccines. So we just don't know. But again, here's one real world example, 800 jobs, uh, probably going to go away uh, because of the travel uh, problems. Right. So we'll have to see then uh, what happens on Kauai uh, as they join the Safe Travels program and that, uh, you know, maybe some of those uh, uh, hoteliers and the businesses uh, uh, 
can see some some business and and have money coming into the coffers. Right. And so this is again this is the the problem policymakers face and uh, as as we said it's with this story of Hawaiian Airlines uh, they have a big challenge and everyone's looking for some kind of uh, guidance as to what the summer is going to be like in terms of the state's travel policies. Right. But you do have to have a plan in place because uh, there's no telling um, what could happen. Right. And things could change always. But, you know, we talked to Carl Bonham. He's the resident economist who's, who's been very prominent lately. He said, look, it's better to have a plan and change it uh, than not have a plan at all. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, Stuart. Thank you. That was Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his full story, head to uh, civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Palhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Celeste Iacoboni, author of How Do You Pray? Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about exploring the field of prayer. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Financial Partners and founder Jeff White with the Coronavirus Market Recovery eBook at honoluluFinancialPartners.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Our daily bread. You know, the news of Love's Bakery closing and the layoff of more than 200 workers later this month had us digging through the vault to test your bread history. In Hawaii, the starchy staple is synonymous with Love's Bakery, the company founded in 1851 by Scottish baker Robert Love. He'd arrived on island with his family via a steamship from Sydney, Australia. Within a month of arriving, he started his baking business, and two years later, he opened his retail bakery in downtown Honolulu. Eventually, the bakery would produce 206 kinds of bread, 70 varieties of buns and rolls, and 14 varieties of cake. But back then, the main business for Honolulu bakers was to rebake old bread from visiting ships or supplying the ships with the biscuits known as hardtack. Love added shortening to the hardtack and came up with a cracker that is still beloved today. For today's quiz, can you tell us what's the name of this cracker? Call 941-3689 or 877-943-689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Hale o Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. You know, just to repeat some developing news this morning, the entire state is under a tsunami watch following a series of earthquakes off the coast of New Zealand. Uh, That means the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center is still evaluating any potential threat to Hawaii. If any waves would reach the islands, they would not arrive until about 4.35 this afternoon at the earliest. We are expecting further updates from the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center today, and we will bring them to you on HPR when we have them. Again, Hawaii is under a tsunami watch following a series of earthquakes off the coast of New Zealand, and the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center is still evaluating any potential threats to the islands. You know, Local 5, the Hawaii Hotel Workers Union, says only 2,000 of its 11,000 members are working. Most are laid off because hotels are not operating at full capacity. Hotel workers will be eligible for vaccines under the Priority Group 1C, which could be in line for shots later this month or in April. At the Halikoa Hotel, the military's hotel, vaccines were offered to its workers, who are Local 5 members, early on. Union leader Eric Gill hails those efforts, but he says he's concerned that new CDC guidelines now include only front of the house workers. He's advocating that the back of the house employees have priority too. We're the ones who meet the guests and now we're letting people in who are positive uh, for COVID and putting them in the hotels. You know, according to the governor's latest proclamation, that hotels are told to keep people who check in with positive or who are waiting to find out. And so basically, unless the hotel workforce is vaccinated, there's a a real danger that uh, COVID can get loose. And so obviously we think it's better for our members, obviously, but also for the people of Hawaii. Our members go home to their families and many of them live in multifamily houses and so on. So uh, to protect the community, we have to protect uh, hotel workers. We are essential to Hawaii's economy. And basically, we're the ones directly facing any incoming uh, COVID infection. So, yes, it makes complete sense for Hawaii to prioritize hotel workers for the vaccine. And have you been invited to come to the table to talk about how this might roll out? Well, we certainly have had discussions with the governor and his people. It appears that the state is hoping that the uh, tourism authority will be able to work out kind of a consensus arrangement that would involve us and the management forces. And so we're certainly going to cooperate with that. We have an alliance with the Hotel and Lodging Association nationally and here locally as well. We're discussing this with them. So we will be uh, cooperating in a campaign to vaccinate our members and other hotel workers. We were hearing about local companies like Zippy's, you know, offering incentives to get their workers those shots. Tyson Foods in Arkansas, you know, same thing. They're offering four hours of pay for their workers to get vaccinated. They have, I think this week, they're doing uh, on-site vaccinations at their plant in Iowa. Do you think there's going to be some kind of mass vaccination site for hotel workers? Would you like to see that? Yeah, I'm not sure. The state appears to be wanting to work through its vaccination centers. You know, we have, we're involved with a program to get our 75-year-old 
members and others to those places. And it involves getting people uh, reservations, you know, making appointments basically uh, through the website. So we're assisting some of the older people in doing that now. But certainly we want to do that for the rest of the workers as well. It isn't clear to me that the state will be setting up remote sites to do this. Certainly the hotel has facilities, but we're not yet sure where, you know, where the hotels will land on any incentives. I we haven't seen the hotels willing to put out uh, much money over the last year uh, or anything, and I'm not sure that there's money for this either. Well, I think everybody would like to see folks feel safe enough to return to work. You know, we would like to see more visitors so that more people can be called back to work because that's been a really tough situation for a lot of your members. Yes, and it's going to remain tough regardless of the vaccine because the hotel corporations are taking advantage of this crisis to make permanent uh, cuts in staffing and services. And this is something that is happening and has been happening. So there's no question that, you know, that given uh, left to their own devices, our, our owners and operators will leave substantial numbers of furloughed workers furloughed even when occupancy comes back. But certainly in order to get occupancy back, we have to be able to maintain safety for our community, but also be able to project safety for our guests. And so, uh, again, the vaccination is an important piece of that. It's not sufficient in and of itself, but it's an important piece, obviously, to try to you know block any infection from spreading out of the hotel campuses. And I don't know what you're hearing from your members. Just this week, there was some concern expressed by the Catholic Church about the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And I don't know if your members are Catholic and if that's going to affect how they feel about the vaccines. You know, And I'm not sure if they have a choice. Yeah, look, I, I think there's many people who are hesitant to take the vaccine have many different reasons, and you can layer a, a religious reason onto that. And certainly many of our members are Catholic, so I, I haven't confronted that yet. I'm not sure what impact that will be. But certainly what is needed here is real clear information and training. Obviously, there's a lot of misinformation out there anywhere you look, and people who are making it their business to lie about things. You know, we we recognize that our members need confidence in the science, and so we're also working on training programs to basically give people the information they need to make an informed choice. We are urging our members to get the vaccine. There is one disturbing piece in all this, which is the CDC, and somebody came up with a, a bright idea of vaccinating only the front of the house workers. And anybody who's worked in a hotel knows that that's a foolish idea. So the state needs to abandon that notion. You know, we need to vaccinate basically all the workers in the hotel. There's no worker that's isolated from guest contact or isolated from workers who have guest contact. So, you know, vaccinating half the hotel is like putting up half a fence. You know, it doesn't keep anything out. So we need to make sure that that, that, that is addressed as well as we go forward. Then obviously there's the question of, you know, vaccinating people who haven't yet returned to work. You know, as the situation emerges from, you know, the worst parts of this pandemic, you know, more people will be called back. And are we going to vaccinate the people who are going to be called back when it gets busy or not? Again, if we don't do that, then we are putting up a fence that has only one or two sides to it. So we're struggling with all this, and uh, we'll wait and see, obviously, what the state comes out with. But we are hopeful that they will prioritize our members and, and other hotel workers and, and address both the front and the back of the house. Yeah, because, I mean, we're talking a layer of protection, so it wouldn't be 
right to say, okay, well, you back of the house people don't have to wear masks, but the front of the house people do, right? Uh, we're going to be wearing masks, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, no one is yet sure about transmissibility or, you know, if people can get it again or transmit it. You know, a lot of that data is still out, so it'd be a mistake to just rely on the vaccine. Obviously, there's other issues about new variants and so on. So it's clear that we're going to have to have some long-term amendments in hotel operations to address this kind of pandemic conditions is hopefully is not likely to be the last pandemic we face. And so, you know, there's, there's some permanent things we have to do to, to, to sort that out. The problem, of course, is those things, safety costs money, bringing people to clean more costs money, you know, leaving space around people in restaurants costs money. Those, those things all cost money. And it isn't clear to me yet uh, how much investment our hotels are actually going to put into the long-term safety issues. You're exactly right, though. I mean, if, if we're not, if if we don't have a strong bulwark where we are, then you know all of our people go home at night. So if we don't have a strong bulwark on infection at the hotel level, then you know the, the transmission into the community is almost assured. Do you know like the average age of your members? Historically, it's been in the mid to late 40s. You know, 46, 47 around there. Fairly senior workforce in our unions because of the excellent contract that we've developed over the years, which makes those jobs attractive for mm-hmm. people to keep. In the hotels, uh, only about 20% or less of our members are working at this point. A, a year ago, uh, before the pandemic shutdowns, you know, we had about 11,000 members. There's fewer than 2,000 of those working now, far fewer than that. Again, you know, membership, you know, in the union context means paying dues. Some of our furloughed members can't pay the dues right now. Right. So these are some of these numbers are in flux. But the real amount of employment back in hotels is is quite small still. The hotels are trying to avoid bringing people back in. And, of course, you know, there's been spikes in occupancy. For example, I think it was Valentine's Day weekend. You know, some of our places were up 40%, 50%. But then on on Monday, it goes down to 8 So people do get called back in and then put that back Back on on. furlough. Oh, wow. So it's... It's a touch and go for people. There's not too many people working full-time now, I would say, in each hotel, dozens. Most of our corporate owners, you know, they they built a real estate bubble, you know, commercial lodging sector. And that bubble has burst, obviously, over the past year when all the hotels, in essence, made no money. And therefore, you know, some of the loans and bonds and various uh, variously structured debt instruments to um, to buy hotels have have been overwhelmed by non-performance and so that's the reason that uh, hotel owners have not put up money they basically got caught short in the musical chairs and the bubble burst and who, whoever's holding those notes is the last one standing and so in the civilian side that's that's the situation Obviously, with the military in the federal facility, you know, that is funded by revenues that aren't even, uh, you know, the Halikor is part of the morale welfare creation. It's not funded by Congress. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and they have a guaranteed base, you know, that, and so, you know, and, and also tax breaks, right? You know, Halikor doesn't pay water tax, sewage fees, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing because they're on the federal base. So so there's certain advantages at Halikor. Right. Um, and, and, and Hollycor has actually been pretty exemplary in the safety uh, measures that it has taken and has been very good about working with uh, our committee and our, our leaders to address safety issues. So, you know, in some ways, uh, 
you know, that hotel is almost exemplary in safety yeah. issues. You know, and I know some of the hotels are looking over there. Right. We've recommended that they do that. Some of the hotels have spoken to Holly Cole oh, people. And, okay. and so, you know, I mean, they, they do kind of pick, compare notes. You know, if the owner won't put up any money, then you can you can't bring people in to clean. The civilian hotels are kind of hand-to-mouth, so they got to get some cash flow up. And they, so some of the cleaning and the preparation and all, all that detail work just hasn't been done. You know, there are many, many situations where workers' uh, safety remains uh, at risk. But I would say probably the biggest one, given the fact that, um, you know, this is a, a aerosol transmission of this disease, you know, when the guests won't wear a mask, it's a real problem yeah. for workers. It's just not fair. That was Eric Gill, head of Local 5, one of two unions who represents hotel workers across the state. Money mules. Heard of the scam? Well, there's an effort to raise awareness about how to avoid falling victim to fraud schemes. The United States Postal Service has released a series of public service announcements designed to educate the public about the variations of the money mule scheme. And with a significant portion of our country's population out of work, one scam warns about shady jobs. Do you have a job that has you mailing cash or packages to people you don't know at the request of someone else? Sounds like you might be a money mule. It might sound like easy money, but it's a scam, and you can be prosecuted, even if you don't know you're committing a crime. Don't be a money mule. Check out any job opportunity before getting involved. For more information, visit USPIS.gov. You know, we reached out to U.S. Postal Inspector Jeff Fitch out of the San Francisco region to learn more about these scams. This week, the first week of March, is National Consumer Protection Week. And it's uh, every year it's a week to highlight the fraud scams that are out there and to provide information so people won't be victimized. Or if they've been victimized, how to report it and who to report it to. And the key with these different, and the, the fraud scams, you know, it's based on the imagination uh, of the uh, individuals that are conducting the scams. And you know, what we'd say is, you know, that the scams remain the same, the technology has changed. So, you know, people contact people by computer, by phone, and the real key to these, you know, it's just we tell people to hang up, delete, or shred. The key to these different scams, and it just runs the gamut. You know, the, basically, the, the, the scammers want to separate people from their money. So what are and you seeing? Have, what are you seeing these days? Uh, it's across the board. You know, we've got uh, where, you know, people are calling and you know there's investment schemes there's the like they act like they're an online dating site or that you've won the Jamaican or you know the Canadian or the uh, UK lottery and the, the secret to that is there are no foreign legal foreign lotteries and what they'll tell you is I'm going to you know send you a money order that'll cover the taxes you need to pay you just have to send me back a couple of hundred dollars well they'll send you a $900 money order or a check both of those are counterfeit when the bank determines their counterfeit, then the bank comes back for you for the money. And then you've sent cash you know, to the, the individual that's running the scam. And this year we're focusing on what we refer to as money mules. 
and a number of these organizations or individuals that are doing these fraud scams are either out of country or out of state. And what they're trying to do is recruit local people. And somebody who may have started off as a victim, they may recruit them saying, hey, look, there's a way to make some money here. You know, we understand you've lost a little bit of money, but we can help you make some money. And what they want you to do is recruit other individuals to take money from them, or they want you to open up bank accounts and move money and these uh, checks or money orders through these bank accounts, and all that is, turns out to be counterfeit. But what the real downside to these being a money mule is you're doing things that are making you arrestable. You're actually breaking the law. And what you know, we really want to do is tell people, do not get yourself involved in these different scams. It's very dangerous you know, that you're the one that's locally. So when law enforcement agencies identify the scam and what's going on, the person that's local is this individual who has been either packing up things like electronic merchandise or some of these financial instruments. So have you seen an uptick? Uh, I've not statistically seen any numbers. Okay. Um, you know, we've been talking with our, our headquarters people. What I would say is that it's been ongoing, that, you know, that the, uh, the bad guys will tweak the scams. They will you know, utilize technology, and you know, there's, they'll utilize an email address that, that comes back to a legitimate company, and they'll just change one or two numbers or digits in the email address. So the, the, the links that they'll go to to look like a legitimate business, it is something that you, know, that you can tell that they put a lot of work into it. And the key is identifying where the money's at and ways to get people to send it to them. So what are you seeing? I mean, walk us through this when you say uh, people are being uh, enticed to be a part of this scheme and, and they're, what, fencing electronics for people? You know, like I was saying, that some of the, uh, the people running these fraud scams are either out of state or literally out of the country, uh, in, a, in a foreign country. And what they'll say to somebody is, we'll ship you some merchandise. I need you to rebox it and then put my business address on it. And, you know, many times that that merchandise is being shipped to the uh, location where the individual that's being used as the money mule is at, has been purchased with, uh, you know, stolen checks or stolen credit cards. I see. So then they do as they're they told. Repackage it, they repackage and then, it. And then they send it to a, another address overseas or out of state. And then the scammers are waiting for the, the merchandise. Okay. So they, they, they pay off this mule, but then the mule doesn't realize that uh, they could get arrested for their part in this. Exactly. The, 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 and that's really, you know, compared to being a victim, which. Again, that's a terrible thing. When we see and meet with these victims, uh, you know, losing money that's critical to retirements, or uh, or they'll uh, try to uh, get people who are wanting, you know, looking for a, a part-time job, and they'll advertise these as uh, work-at-home schemes. And you know, uh, we we've been hearing a lot about how uh, during these COVID times, there's been a lot of fraud with. Uh, the unemployment claims, uh, a lot of fraud with uh, the stimulus checks, and uh, even you know tax returns, right? Because we're getting into tax season, so there's just lots of ways that people can get the info that they need. You know, your 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 important info, and then you become victim. Absolutely, and the, and the real key is one, like I was saying at the at the beginning. You know, hang up, delete, or shred. Just you know, don't respond back when. 
uh, you receive some of these solicitations. You know, if you don't recognize who they're coming from or who they are, you know, just don't respond. And then, you know, if you've been the victim, report it. It is critical. And you can report it to, you know, if it comes by mail to postal inspectors. We have a number of, uh, uh, a number of different items on our uh, website that cover what the schemes look like and how to identify them. And you can go to our website, which is USPIS.gov, and just open up, and it discusses uh, the, what the, some of the different fraud schemes look like and how to avoid them. And then if you've been the victim, how to report to law enforcement the fraud. And it's critical that, 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 that when talking to uh, the inspectors that we have that investigate fraud, that they say that reporting is the key to many of those investigations. Okay, so if you've got home video of uh, scammers coming up to your box or or absconding with your packages, uh, that's all uh, good evidence that needs to be turned over to law enforcement. Right, right. Well, actually, for uh, the uh, for the that, that more of that is uh, theft related, mm-hmm. where they're actually coming to your door. The, many of the uh, fraud scams, where we're talking about mail fraud or other types of fraud. They're uh, contacting you by phone or sending you a letter or sending you an email. So that's where they're trying to make that connection. Right. But either way, you've got to report it. Reporting makes a difference. Now, the other thing when you're uh, talking about mail theft or correction, mail fraud, when you're uh, talking about mail fraud, the mail fraud statute has uh, a couple of parts to it. And that actually the statute reads that uh, we've had suspects in the past go out of their way not to use the U.S. mail, but the victim will send them a check via U.S. mail, we can still charge them with mail fraud because the statute says uses the mail in a fraud scheme or causes the mail to be used. So the, the key to this is make that report. And you can make an online report on our, our website or uh, you can contact us by phone, which is uh, using our 24-hour number, which is our dispatch, which is 877-876-2455. And, right. again, even though we say this is National Consumer Protection Week, fraud protection is a year-round. You know, everybody needs to be vigilant. Uh, if you've got a, a relative or a friend and you notice that something's not quite right, say something and let them know that they can contact postal inspectors to report fraud. That was Postal Inspector Jeff Fitch talking about the latest uh, scams that USPS is seeing across the country. You know, we should add that there will be a webinar on postal fraud scheduled for tomorrow. It is part of the Hawaii Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs push to put the spotlight on all kinds of fraud. Look for links on our website. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, 
which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Okay. <laughs> Today we fondly look back at the history of Love's Bakery, a local icon whose checkered bags are staples on grocery shelves across the state. The news of its impending closure had us looking back. Did you know that a fire in 1884 burned down the original downtown location? Fortunately, it survived the 1886 Chinatown fire and the bubonic plague fire of 1900. The company carried on and expanded an Evil A location in 1929 and a Kapahulu plant in 1943, but it also changed ownership a few times. ITT Continental Baking Company bought it in the 1960s, and in 1981, First Baking Company of Japan bought the company and called it Daiichiya Loves Bakery. During this time period, it moved to its current plant on Middle Street. In 2008, local management bought the company, and it's currently locally owned with more than 230 employees. And to think, it started with Scottish immigrant and baker Robert Love, who added shortening to hardtack and created the Saloon Pilot Cracker. We had lots of calls. It was a very popular quiz. Congratulations to Brad of Coloco. You got it right. That's today's quiz. And, you know, we would really like to know what you love about loves and will miss when they say aloha at the end of the month. We would love it if you would share your memories and thoughts with us by writing or recording a voice memo and sending it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that's it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa sits in for an Aloha Friday going into the weekend. Share your thoughts about vaccines or unemployment claims or loves, anything else you may have heard on our air. Uh, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.